So we have been going through the Bible in five years period of time. This is your first time here. Uh, what we do is we read the scriptures together five day or five days a week, six days out of the week, and then on Sunday we come together and we our sermons are based upon what we've read this past week. And we're actually pretty close to getting through the entire Bible. We're we're past four and a half years at this point. We're pushing the five-year mark. It's pretty exciting for us. Uh, and this past week, we read the book of James. I love the book of James. James is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. Um, give you a little bit of background concerning James, because there's a little bit of confusion. Even myself, growing up, when I first was reading the Bible, I was confused as to which James this was, and you might be the same way. Uh, because there are three significant Jameses, Jameses? Jameses, okay, in the Bible. There are two disciples by the name of James. There is... James, who isn't mentioned near as much, and then there's James, who is the brother of John, who's one of the circle, inner circle of Jesus' group, okay? Then, there is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, who wrote James? Now, as an early Christian, my assumption was, well, this is the disciple. This is probably the one in the inner circle, right? Wrong. It's not that one. As a matter of fact, that James died fairly early on in the ministry. We read about that in Acts chapter 12 as a persecution of the church was growing. James and Peter are arrested and James is killed. And seeing that that pleased the crowds, they were going to kill Peter. But an angel came and saved him from that fate. And he went off from there, uh, away from ministry in Jerusalem. And so what do we have going on here? Who is this James? Is it the other one? No, it's not the other apostle. This is actually Jesus' half-brother. Which is ironic because during the ministry of Christ, in his earthly ministry, James was not a believer. Nor was he a follower. We read and we will read In John chapter 7, you know, how they were saying, hey, go show yourself to the world if this is who you really are. He wasn't a believer. But there's something interesting that happens that we have recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have this early creed of the church about how Jesus died and was rose again according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to James. He appeared to the apostles, and then he appeared to James, and he appeared to Peter, and then finally appeared to Paul as one untimely born. It is at this point many people believe that James became a believer in Christ. When your half-brother rises from the dead, that's pretty good proof, right? And so we have a family member whom Jesus loved so much that even through his earthly ministry, when he didn't believe, when he rose from the dead, he went and visited him to let him know, I have truly risen. That's pretty cool, don't you think? 
And it's this James that we see in Acts chapter 15 who is writing the letter to the churches on what the Gentiles ought to be doing when there's this huge dispute that happens. It's James. He said, we thought it was good and the Holy Spirit thought it was good. James is so well known that in early church history it is claimed that he had such calluses on his knees for praying for the people of God. Such a 180 turnaround. So, this week, we got to read James. I love reading James. James is written to the dispersion of the 12 tribes. These are believing Jews who have fled Jerusalem to live as Christians in other places around the world. And what we find in James is something a, a little bit different. You know, we've, we've read the Pauline letters and we've been through all of them. And, and going through the Pauline letters, we, we see this, you know, this is great. This is wonderful. This is, look at what God is doing through you. And then let's have a Christology and let's just jump into this. James has none of that. As a matter of fact, the the title of my sermon is called Attitude is Everything. And I I think that when we read throughout James, we get this, this idea of attitude kind of affects the whole flow of chapters 1 through 5. And I'll be referencing most of the book, though I won't be reading from most of the book. And prayerfully, you've already read it. And if you're new here and you haven't read it, I encourage you to do it afterwards. Take you 15, 20 minutes. It's not a long book of the Bible. Why is James written? Well, let's take our Bibles out. Let's take a look at the first few verses here. Chapters, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and then verse 12. And this is what it says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And down in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So here's the purpose that he's writing. I'm writing that you will persevere. Your faith is under trial. You're going to go through times of testing. And I want you to persevere. I want you to persevere until the end. And then he does the most Jewish thing ever. He punches you in the face over and over and over again with the truth, doesn't he? I mean, it doesn't, that's part of the reason I love James. He just doesn't pull any punches. It's just like, like hit after hit after hit. It's like the top 40, right? So when he's Casey Kasem. And the interesting thing about this is as he's covering these things and he says there's going to be trials and consider it joy when you go through these trials. Talking about persecution, right, that they're going to go through. Consider it 
joy because if you stand the test of these trials, man, that's going to mean the crown of life is yours. And yet, here's an interesting point. He spends most of his letter not talking about those trials. Did you guys catch that? And do you want to know why? I'm going to show you exactly why. Because the number one threat to your faith and to my faith is the person we look at in the mirror every day. Your faith is going to be most tested and tried, not by anybody around you, but by you. Our biggest obstacle to belief is ourselves. Consider the next verses in chapter 1. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, he gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created." There's two things that James does in this passage. Is Number one is he firmly places the blame where it belongs on your shoulders and my shoulders for every temptation that happens to us. God, why did you make me this way? Our culture is asking that question a lot. God, why did you do this to me? Nope. James makes it very clear. This isn't God. God's not tempted by evil. He tempts nobody with evil. You know who's tempted with evil? I am. And why am I tempted with evil? Because I want to do those things. There's no other excuse. I can't be tempted with something I don't want to do. Think about that for just a moment. If you absolutely don't want to do something, how are you going to be tempted with it? We should go graffiti that man's house. I don't want to do that. I have no desire whatsoever to graffiti somebody else's property. Zero. Well, we'll talk bad about it. I don't really care. I'm not going to do it. I am not tempted by it in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to make that something I want to do. See, we can't be tempted by something we don't want to do. And James spends a majority of his letter tackling the issues of our evil desires. The ones that were found to the people that were, he was writing to then and are still in our hearts today. 
So chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, we hear about, you know, everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Social media has made us very slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to get angry. Do you guys agree with that? Teenagers. How many teenagers do we have in here? Don't raise your hand. Are we quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry to our parents, to our teachers, to all of our perceived wrongs? Parents, don't raise your hand. Are we quick to listen to our children, slow to speak to them as they're telling us about things that are going on, slow to get angry with them concerning things we get confronted with? I don't always fall graciously in that category. And why aren't we? Because we don't want to be. Chapter 2 begins this idea of favoritism. They had rich people that were there, exploiting the people who were poor who were there. Because they were rich and therefore, guess what? I guess because you're rich, that makes you blessed of God. And therefore, we should put you in positions where you should sit here in the favored seat so everybody else can see this is my rich friend right here. And James just kind of bludgeons them a little bit, doesn't he? Saying, you... You despise the poor, and yet it's the poor who have been called to have faith in God. Well, the rich oftentimes, guess what? While they may be rich, why do we favor them so much? Because what they can do for us? That, that's not supposed to be the test of faithfulness within the body of Christ. Who should be your elders are faithful men. They shouldn't necessarily be businessmen. And yet, for a majority of many churches in America, we would see that what constitutes an elder board is oftentimes, or a leadership group of any church, are probably businessmen. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to diss businessmen, okay? If you're a successful businessman, God bless you, sincerely. But are you faithful? That's the criteria. The criteria is faithfulness to God. Not how much money and what you can do for us if you get put in that position. And they were making favoritism as a result of that. Smoozing up to somebody else like, ah, well, I really want Jesus to save you. It's all right if Jesus saves you too. Is that really supposed to be the heart of the believers in Christ? And why are we like that? Because of our own evil desires. Taming of the tongue, chapter 3, all about the taming of the tongue, right? Oh my goodness. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be so. I memorized that from a third day song, by the way. That's a pretty awesome song. But think about it. Our mouths are supposed to be used to praise God, but we, we are kind of duplicit concerning how we use it, right? 
Earlier this week, there was a little segment. I don't know if it was KKOB or if it was KRQE. I can't remember the segment. I saw it on YouTube. I'm sorry. Um, But it was a little segment talking about that New Mexico is in the top five most cussing states in the United States. And Albuquerque is number three on the big cities of the most cussing towns in the United States. I've lived here for 20 years. I can attest it's true. And yet at the same time, I've heard many Christians say, well, it's the one thing I can't get a handle on. I'm going to tell you something. You cuss because you want to cuss. It's your own evil desires. Because all of a sudden, the self-control you don't have when you walk into the doors of the church, all of a sudden, I can hold my tongue like nobody's business for an hour and a half. Make no mistake. You cuss because you want to cuss. Because it's your own evil desire. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say it's not a temptation. And it's not something you shouldn't overcome. And it's not irredeemable. But James puts a very powerful word on it in James chapter 1, verse 26. Look at this. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is what? It's worthless. It's worthless. And everybody on that, on that little segment right there, they were proud about their cussing. Beep, 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 beep. And I say that affectionately. You think I'm joking, I'm really not. And we wonder why there's no faith. Why, why would faith mean anything to somebody who has that garbage out of their mouth there and then wants to say praise the Lord? I'm sorry, I can't hear the praise of God through the garbage. I can't. And neither can anybody else. And so James hits hard. And what about fights among ourselves? Any of you fight with people? Liars, one and all. Nobody raising their hand now. I fight with people. I hate it, but I do. Oftentimes with the people I'm closest with. Right? I fought with people in this congregation who I love. Don't like it, but it's true. And James covers this. James 4, 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? Again, going back to these desires again. That battle within you. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He just calls them right out, doesn't he? What causes fights among you guys? Why do you guys fight all the time? Why do we fight in the church over the stupidest of things? Because we're not getting what we want. I want what I want when I want it. And if you're not going to do that, dadgummit. 
I'm going to be so mad. Unless, let me tell you something, as a pastor, unless the argument ultimately comes down to the exposition of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, it is not worth the argument. Maybe worth a discussion. A meeting together of the minds. I have no problem. There are disagreements that happen. But there's no reason that we should fight over things that are ultimately only earthly oriented and have nothing to do with the salvation of souls and the deepening of our relationship with Christ has no place among the body of believers it doesn't and you and I who cause fights within the congregation over something less than that should take heed these words because it might just be that you're not getting what you want when you want and we can bring that to home how many stupid arguments I've gotten into with my wife. Stupid. As in, I still don't remember what they're about because they were so stupid. Because I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. Any of you have that same problem? Just me. Guys, we are our biggest obstacle. He spends so much time talking about the evil desires in our heart and we get nothing off, we don't get off the hook, right? And the reason we don't get off the hook is because it's our evil desires, it's not God's. Got to look in that mirror every day and say, God, save me from myself. That's why Jesus came and died, by the way, to save you from yourself. There's these lines that are going around that God, you know, sent his son to save you from his, from, from God. No, that's not true. God sent his son to save you from yourself. You were miring in self-destruction that you rightfully deserve and I rightfully deserve. And he sent Jesus in his love and mercy to redeem those who would accept his sacrifice. Though he died for everybody. That's why it contrasts our evil desires with God's perfect will. Every good and perfect gift is from God above who doesn't change. I'm so glad for that. I'm glad I don't have a changing God who one minute says this and another minute says this and it's totally opposite one another and I could never know what's right. Unfortunately, it puts me in a position to know I'm in a bad place. And I'm constantly fighting myself for obedience to God. I'm going to tell you something. Those of you struggling with sexual sin, no matter what it is, whether it's pornography or looking at other stuff online or, or whether you're, you're tempted in the LGBTQ stuff, that happens because of your desires. If you didn't desire it, it'd have no hold on you. How do we get away from it? Chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 
If our biggest obstacle to belief is ourself, then our only solution is humility and repentance before God. Trusting in Jesus Christ and he will lift us up. That's what we're talking about here in James. That's why he spends most of the time, I spend a good portion of my sermon on this first point. The overcoming of this first obstacle, this first attitude, this evil desire that we want to run to is humility. It's a humbling of ourselves. It's an acknowledgement that those things are in our lives. As a matter of fact, in one of the other verses that we look at in James chapter 3, verse 14, it says, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Either one of those extremes. Don't boast about it. But we live in a society that loves to boast about those things. Or deny the truth. Which, that's end of things, I think, as, as believers in Christ, we probably hide a little bit more than we should. Oh, I'm fine. I, I, don't, I don't struggle with that. I struggle with a lot of stuff, and I'm pastor. You know Why? Because while I'm redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, my evil desires still fight with me. I still have to humble myself. I still have to get on my knees and say, I messed up this time in this way, oh God. And it was me, it wasn't you. You didn't do this to me, it wasn't your fault. It was all me. You've given me nothing but grace through Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can come to God too. But it's not the only thing he talks about. While our biggest obstacle to belief is ourselves, our sinful desires, there's another obstacle to belief that takes place that he spends a decent amount of time. It's our sin of omission. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. It's not just about knowing the word of God. We've got to do it. We've got to put it into action. Belief precedes action, yes. Having faith begins with that belief and it precedes action, but it's because of that belief I do this action. If I do not do this action, do I really believe? See, the action is the evidence of faith that you and I need to see from one another. How do I know that you have faith? That's why James later on says, you know, show me your works without your belief and I'll show you my works by what I do. Right? I'll show you my faith by what I do. You have faith. Even the devils believe and tremble. Right? It's not the type of faith that we're looking for. So he spends some time talking about that. So he talks about wisdom early on. Says, if any man lacks wisdom, he should ask God. And he should not doubt, because a man who doubts shouldn't believe that he should receive anything. He's a double minded man. It's unstable in all that he does. 
We should be praying for wisdom and trusting that God gives wisdom liberally to those who ask of him. Without doubting. That's doing what the word says. We just read the word. We should ask God for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously. And don't doubt. How many of you after asking would be like, I wonder if he's really going to do it. That person shouldn't believe he should get anything. James goes in chapter 2 and he says, suppose you run up to a brother or sister. Let me show you that faith without works is nothing. It doesn't mean anything. And you see that they're naked and destitute and hungry and you go, oh, I hope you well and be well fed, but you do nothing for them. What good is it? I see the need. I should be doing something. These are the two things that Jesus talked about. Look at the flower of the field. They neither spin nor sow or reap. And yet Solomon in all of his splendor has never been clothed like them. He mentions food and clothing. The same thing that we talked about in 1 Timothy. Food and clothing. And here James. Who's his example? What are they missing? Two things. Food and clothing. Pretty consistent throughout the scriptures. But you do nothing for them. I wish you well. I see the need. Bye. I'll pray for you. How's that going to help? You know, James would come to the conclusion at the end of chapter 4, verse 17, it says this. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins, or it is sin to them. Think about that for just a moment. This is a sin of omission. Something you ought to be doing, but you didn't do. Therefore, it is sin. It's not just a my bad, or I'll do better next time. It's something to be repented of. It's something to turn away from. Think about that for just a moment. This goes in every area of life. Think about the disciplines of faith. How many of you have ever woke up in the morning and said, you know what, I need to read my Bible today, and then went and didn't read your Bible? I've done that. You know, I really should be in the Word, but that football game's just calling me, right? I really should be praying for this person. You know what, I should call this person because Therese has asked for help and it's on my mind to do it. Yes, I'm, I'm plugging you, Therese. And God might be telling some of you to go and do that. If you don't do it, that is a sin of omission. Not everybody can do it, and this isn't a guilt trip to get everybody to do it. You might have 20 people at your house now. (laughs) Move this one dresser, 20 people, five minutes. (laughs) Throw it up there. But here's the thing. If God is calling you to do that and you're convicted of the Holy Spirit, hey, that, that's for me. I should go answer that. You don't do it. That's sin. He doesn't just say that's wrong. That's not my bad. That's sin. The fellowship of believers, the meeting together, we know we ought to do it. It's commanded in the scriptures. The biggest argument, I don't want to say argument, conversation, gentlemen, that we had this week online, discussion, was what are we going to do with me? Because he had the COVID. So he's not coming in. 
We started talking about what we're going to do. We came up with this idea of projecting me like we did before. But all of us were like, that is such a not good option. We'll do it if we have to. We don't want to. And by the grace of God, on Saturday, I came up COVID negative. Praise God, right? So I'm happy for that because I'm here today. Because I'd rather be here anyway. You know why? Because nothing replaces the fellowship of believers. Nothing. Those of you who are online, if all you're watching is online and you're not a part of fellowship outside of the fact that you cannot be, if you've chosen this, you are choosing by a sin of omission, sin. God wants you in fellowship because this is not. And if my face were on the screen, I could have brought the message, but I wouldn't have been in fellowship. So, anything good we're supposed to do. That includes outreach. How many of you are outreaching? Telling others about Jesus. Inviting people to church. Inviting people to be in this fellowship where they can hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. If God has convicted you to do that and you're not doing that, it is a sin of omission. How many of you are discipling other people? Bringing them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord because that is part of the great commission that every single one of us are supposed to do. If you are not doing that, that is a sin of omission. He who knows the good that he's supposed to do and doesn't do it sins. I want to see every single person in this congregation. I would love to see every single person in this congregation in those baptismal waters baptizing somebody because you've been discipling them in the Lord. And when they come to that point of saying, I'm ready for that commitment in Christ, they point to somebody and they say, I want you to do that. And if you're not doing that, That's part of our commission. That's what we're called to do. It's a direct command of Jesus. And not doing it is a sin of omission. It's important that we recognize that. And it needs to be repented of. It needs to be turned away and say, I need to start being in obedience to Christ concerning those things. See, these are the things that he spends his time talking about. Remember, we talked about in the very beginning, right? He wants to see a persevering faith. And then he goes on and talks about you. Not the world and how they're going to turn you away from Christ. How you are going to do it. You're either going to do it, number one, through your evil desires of doing things contrary to the will of God or not doing the things God wants you to do. This attitude. And then finally, number three, he does come back to this idea of persevering under trial. And just to remind you what he had said back in chapter one, it says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know where he picks this up again? Chapter five. He spends two whole verses on it. Verses 10 and 11. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets 
who spoke in the name of the Lord. And as you know, we considered blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. For those of you who know about Job, remember he's a man who's serving God. And as he's serving God, the devil tempts him and says, look, he will curse you to your face if you take away all of your favor for him. So God takes away his money, his servants, his blessing, his health, everything. And Job never curses God to his face. He laments the trial he's going through. He hates what he's going through. He wants an audience with God. And nobody's going to say Job was perfect in doing this. But the one thing he didn't do was he cursed God. He never cursed God. I'm going to serve him. As a matter of fact, in Job chapter 13 and verse 15, he says these words, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Going through this painful trial, it doesn't matter how hard it gets. My hope is in God, despite how hard things are right now. Because I'm going to continue to follow him, even when it's hard. You know why? Why could Job do that? Because Job was a man who already knew about his evil desires. Every day he brought sacrifices, not just for himself, but for his family. Maybe they've thought they've tried to curse God in their, in their heart, so I want to bring sacrifices for them too. You know what else Job did do? Job did do the things that God wanted him to do. There was no sin of omission on his part. So when the trials came, he was ready to persevere because he was already practicing this personally. I'm denying myself to live for God. I'm going to keep doing the things God wants me to do. Oh, now the world wants me to stop doing the thing. I'm already having to fight myself with this on a daily basis. What's the world got that I ain't got? You want a persevering faith? You start with that man, with that woman in the mirror. And you righteously evaluate Which desires are mine that God doesn't want in my life? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to humbly give this back to God? Knowing that he's full of mercy and grace. What he's done for me in Jesus Christ. And recognizing that these things that I need to repent of are because of me. They're not him. They're me. And then I need to start doing the things God wants me to do. Despite what everybody else around me says. What other people think. If God's told me to pray for this person over here, I'm going to go reach out and pray for them. If God's told me to invite this person over here, then I'm going to invite this person over here. If God's told me to give to this person over here, to give to this cause because of blank, because it lines up with God's will, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do it without hesitation. I'm not just going to merely say amen because the pastor is standing up forward and I agree with his thoughts. It's got to work itself out in my life. Otherwise, I'm not doing my faith, I'm doing his. At some point, it has to be personal to you. 
And when you start feeling that sacrifice, then the people will start saying things, because I guarantee you they will. And your faith will be tested, and you'll be able to stand in perseverance. You know why? Because you've already been fighting yourself. And recognizing where you would draw yourself away from Jesus. Mm-mm, I've already fought that fight. <laughs> no, I know you want me to walk that way. It's so easy to walk that way. I know the culture is walking that way. And I have walked that way. And every day I have to fight myself from walking in that direction. Because part of me wants to go there. But I know it's not the part of me that Jesus died for. Jesus died for me to live for him. Old man becoming new. And when we look at it that way, James and Paul are oftentimes put at odds with one another, but they sound a whole lot alike, don't they? What's the goal? James 1.12 Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The book of James is about the practical outworking of our love for Jesus Christ and nothing more. That's the type of love that should be in each one of us. That's how you and I will persevere to the end and not fall away from faith. But we've got to confront that man in the mirror. Every single day. Do you stand with me? Just have you all close your eyes and look around. Not even going to be any hands raised. You don't have to worry about that either. But I just want a moment between you and God. What desires are you fighting that you know are against the will of God? And maybe for the first time you recognize that they're your desires. God didn't place them there. God didn't put him there to tempt you. He's not tempted by these things. You're tempted by them because you want to do them. And you need to turn away from it. Would you pray right now? Just you and God. Not confessing to anybody else. Just you and God. What are those things? What do you need to give up and humble yourself and ask for the grace of Jesus Christ for? And are there things in your life that you know that God has called you to do? Be simple things like reading the word of God praying more often and you know you have just been shrugging it off that you need to repent and walk in obedience in these things because God wants a persevering faith
that's going to last and it's only going to happen when you're practicing your faith. What are those things you need to start doing? God, I pray. God, I pray for the man in the mirror. I pray for myself, oh God. I recognize, dear Heavenly Father, how my heart can be drawn away from you, oh Lord. And it's not you, it's totally me. It's every single time me. It's what I want to do. Those things would have no hold on me if I didn't want to do them, oh God. And so I ask right now, oh Lord, in the name of Jesus, for humble forgiveness for those times that I have taken my eyes off of you to do what I wanted to do to make an excuse to do what I wanted to do, to even blame you for something you had nothing to do with. God, I pray for the strength to be able to do the things you've called me to do. I pray to your Heavenly Father for those people that I'm supposed to witness to, those others that I'm supposed to disciple up for myself and getting in your word and doing the things you're calling me to do in outreach and other areas, dear Heavenly Father, in my personal life. God, I want to hear your voice clearly. And God, when I hear it, help me to have the courage to do it right then, right there, without excuse, without hesitation, O Lord, that I might practice my faith that I profess to have and not merely talk about it. God, help me practice in these things that I might pray.